Good morning. Welcome this 12th Sunday after Pentecost to Queen Anne Lutheran Church. Whether you are a long-term member, a visitor from the neighborhood, or a guest from afar, we are glad you are here. A few things before we begin. First, there may be a shortage of bulletins. So uh, if that is the case, we encourage you to share with one another. Second, children are always welcome in worship. If needed, we also have childcare available upstairs. Third, as a gift to yourself and to your neighbor, we invite you at this time, please, to silence your phones. Fourth, and finally, I want to say, after being on sick leave for six weeks, it is really good to be back and to see each of you. Our message this morning centers on something peripheral to our readings, yet something practical, perhaps even something universal, that each of us has experienced or will experience in our lives. What is it? Our second reading will offer a clue. We turn now to all our welcome, our gathering hymn, which is number 641 in the red hymnal. Please rise as you are able.
we continue with the apostolic greeting on page two of your worship bulletin. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. O oh God, you resist those who are proud and empower those who are humble. Give us the humility of your Son, that we may embody the generosity of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
The book of Proverbs is part of a collection of writings known as wisdom literature. Wisdom literature gave directions to Israel's leaders and people for the conduct of daily life. Today's reading is about humility. A reading from the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, verses 6 through 7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Word of God, word of life. The second reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8 and 15 through 16. The conclusion of the letter to the Hebrews contains suggestions for the conduct of a holy life, all of which are shaped by God's love toward us in Jesus Christ. A reading from Hebrews. Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them, those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. For God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same, yesterday and today and forever. Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Word of God, word of life. Please rise as you are able for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 14th chapter. 
On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come to you and say, give this person your place. And then, in disgrace, you would start to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. Please be seated. Grace to you and peace from God, the source of life, and from Jesus, God's Son, who is the Christ. Amen. I spent a lot of time on I-5, traveling north and south to my parents' home in Chico, California, where I'm from. And along the way, I engaged almost ritualistically in a kind of spiritual masochism. I listened to Christian radio. And I do so in the spirit of, one, trying to understand what the dominant form of Christianity says in this culture, but two, always hoping that there are little gems I can nevertheless draw out of what I hear. One of the things that frustrates me, however, is that the problems of faith, according to preachers on Christian radio and television, often go unaddressed. And so today, to remedy that in this, our little corner of Christendom, you might say, I would like to speak on what I call the agony of choice and how our faith as Christians can help us make some of the most difficult decisions in our lives. Angela and Scott were two of the closest siblings you would ever meet. It wasn't always that way, of course. As children, not unlike my brother and me, they would often fight. But things changed shortly after Scott, the oldest by two years, turned 10. One night, Scott and Angela's parents were driving home together from dinner when suddenly a hit-and-run driver ran a red light and collided into the side of their car. They were pronounced dead on the scene. In the months that followed, now in the care of foster parents, Scott 
and Angela bonded. Each was all the other had. Later in his 20s, Scott faced a second tragedy. He started experiencing chest pain, repeated bouts with pneumonia, and difficulty breathing, each of which led to the diagnosis, all of us, all of us dread. Scott, now divorced and in sole custody of his two daughters, had terminal lung cancer. The doctor gave him six months to live. After Scott received his diagnosis, and still while in a state of shock, he immediately reached out to his sister, Angela. You have to promise me you'll take custody of my kids, he said to her. You and Jason, her spouse, are the only real family they have. Now, Angela loved her nieces, and she felt a deep responsibility to look after them. But there was a problem. Jason had never wanted kids, so much so that when Angela told him the news, he gave her an ultimatum. I feel bad, he said, after they argued for several hours. I really do. But if you decide to raise them, I will leave. Naturally, Angela was devastated. How could she possibly choose between raising her brother's children and her marriage? What should she do? Fortunately, many of us will never find ourselves in Angela's situation, one where we are forced to decide between two options of the highest value. Yet at some level, Angela's dilemma resonates, perhaps with all of us, doesn't it? I mean, we all know to a greater or lesser extent the sheer agony sometimes, the sheer agony of decision-making. Right? Some of us remember, for example, how difficult it was to choose which college to attend or which major to pursue. I remember when I was an undergraduate, I was told that if you are still undecided and it's the end of your first year, just tell others that you're keeping your options open. I was like that. Others among us may recall the difficulty in choosing a partner, our first career a different career, or when to retire from a career that gave us meaning. The good news, in short, and at least, is that we are not alone. While class mobility, socioeconomic status, race, and a variety of other factors determine which choices are available to us in many ways, the predicament of difficult decision-making arguably constitutes a widespread, if not universal, human experience. All of us have to make difficult decisions at some point in our lives. Even without reflecting on it consciously, we know these decisions are difficult because in many cases, we can only make them once. We also sense their impact, 
how they could potentially shape irreversibly the course of our lives, how they could move us in one direction as opposed to all the others. Such at least is the view of probably the most prolific and certainly the most neurotic Lutheran philosopher and theologian of the 19th century, Soren Kierkegaard. He's my favorite. Life would be easier, Kierkegaard argues, if we were merely animals. We would still live out our lives in time, of course, past, present, and future. No creature can escape that. However, we would be blissfully ignorant of the brute fact that one day we are going to die. To be human, on the other hand, is to know we are going to die. To recognize that death constitutes the backdrop of all our decisions. That time will stop for each of us. Like the man and woman in the Garden of Eden, our eyes have been opened, and this awareness places extraordinary pressure on what we choose for ourselves. We know we have options, yet we also know we only have a finite amount of time to actualize even just a few of them meaningfully. This is how Kierkegaard understands the human predicament. To be conscious is to be aware of this limitation. It is to know that there are many options and that when we choose one, all the others are excluded. Though we presumably gain something by choosing one option over the other, we certainly lose something as well. We lose all the other possibilities. The trouble is that we can never be sure, it would seem, that what we have gained in our choice exceeds what we have lost. Hence, the sheer agony of decision. We can, in other words, never be certain, Kierkegaard argues, whether the decisions we have made in life were the best ones for us or even the right ones for us. Or can we? As most of you know, the claim I struggle with most in the whole world is that God has a plan. Followed closely by the corollary, everything happens for a reason. Now, before some of you leave, let me explain why. For one thing, these phrases are not biblical. They're not. Sure, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11 talks about having God or God having plans rather for the people of Israel, plans for their welfare and not for harm to give them a future with hope. But notice the language there. God has multiple plans for the Israelites in general, not a single plan for each and every one of them, much less each and every one of us. I think here, too, of the story of Esther. When Mordecai confronts Esther and tells her she must choose either to step in on behalf of her people to save them or not, he says, at least according to some interpretations, that if she doesn't, help will come from another place. That is to say, here God doesn't have a plan 
God does have a plan B. God accommodates to the situation. The same is true for writers of the New Testament. God may have a plan for our salvation, a plan for the church, the body of Christ, or intentions for the world in general. But God does not micromanage each and every detail of our lives. No book in the New Testament says that. Not everything, in short, happens for a reason, according to Scripture. In fact, as Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books in the Bible, confirms, it often appears like nothing happens for a reason. The strongest don't always win in battle, like we would expect. And the fastest don't always win in the race, like we would expect. But time and chance, the author writes, happen to them all. Time and chance happen to them all. Claiming God has a plan, secondly, violates the freedom of choice God has given us as human beings. It reduces us, arguably, to puppets who merely play out what God has already mapped out or determined. In the process, and I want you to hear this closely, it confuses faith with fate. Faith with fate as if the purpose in life is merely to submit to what has already been arranged from the beginning. We become, as I said, puppets or robots in the process. Third and finally, claiming God has a plan or that everything happens for a reason ultimately makes God responsible for evil and suffering. If everything that comes to pass reflects God's plan or God's will, then whatever bad things happen in life must come from the proverbially abusive father who punishes us for our own good. Who among us seriously can trust in a God who acts like a monster by destroying people's lives, even if the reason for such an act will be unveiled to us, say, after we die? How, moreover, as Christians, could we ever equate such a God with the loving God we see in Jesus Christ? Okay. You've heard my reasons, and thanks be to God, you're still here. Really, thank you for entertaining them, even if you don't agree. Perhaps especially if you don't agree. Now, let me explain why I shared them. It was certainly not to embarrass anyone who believes that whatever comes to pass reflects God's plan. I understand that for many people, this view can be extremely comforting. Think about it. If a person I love dies prematurely or senselessly, then believing I will someday know why could be very reassuring. Maybe their death wasn't senseless after all, I might say to myself. Maybe there was a purpose behind it, one I simply do not yet know. If I believe that God has a plan, Notice as well how much that frees me from the agony of decision-making we discussed earlier. In the modern world, we have so many options available to us that choosing which ones to pursue has become more difficult than ever. Believing that whatever path I choose reflects God's plan for my life accordingly reduces my anxiety. Instead of wondering whether I should become a pastor, a professor, a plumber, or a police officer, I can simply attribute what I decide, or what I have decided, to God. What a relief. 
But notice the cost. Not only have I undermined my own freedom, since whatever I choose is already ostensibly part of God's plan, I have also undermined the responsibility I should bear for my choices. There must be an alternative, something that can help us make wise decisions as people of faith. And here's the good news for today. There is. There is an alternative to using the phrase, God has a plan to reduce the anxiety I have over making difficult decisions. A bit earlier, I shared with you two phrases that I dislike, the claim again that God, ha- uh, that God has a plan and its corollary. Everything happens for a reason. Now I want to share with you one of my favorite phrases. It's a quote Kyle, our cantor, remembers from one of his professors at Luther Seminary. Lutherans, this professor said, have a nose for the gospel. It belongs, you might say, to our spiritual DNA. Since Martin Luther, the Lutheran tradition has, at its best, focused on the good news or promise of God's mercy and grace as the word of God in the Bible. This word of comfort, mercy, and grace that comes from God appears in both Testaments, older and newer. Today we see it in Hebrews 13, our second reading. Notice here what the author does to encourage his audience not only to live a godly life, but also to help them endure torture and persecution. You can take a look in your bulletin if you wish. He turns to scripture by citing Joshua 1.5, where God says to the Israelites, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you hear that? It's pure gospel. The kind of promise we see most famously in Psalm 23.4, which says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil for you, that is God, are with me, your rod and, they, and your staff, they comfort me. The gospel is that no matter where we are in life, God is with us. Now, I can just imagine what you are thinking. Okay, that's great, Pastor Dan. We're Lutherans. We have a nose for the gospel. Kyle said it, you believe it, that settles it. But how on earth does the promise or good news that God will never leave us relate in any way whatsoever to the agony of making decisions you mentioned before? Indeed, I think you spent too much time driving on I-5. Okay, that's fair, but let's see if we can bring this all together. Imagine, if you will, that you are at a fork in the road. You have an immensely difficult decision to make regarding how you will be spending the next few years of life or perhaps who you will be spending them with. Suddenly, the burden of choice becomes apparent to you. You certainly could make your decision by assuming God has a plan for you and that whatever you decide will reflect what that plan is. But what if you assumed Instead, that God has given you the freedom to choose and that no matter which road you choose, God will meet you on the way ahead. In the multiverse, in other words, God is in every possibility. 
God promises to accompany you whatever decision you make. God will be with you, for God has promised never to leave you or forsake you. What a powerful way to affirm your freedom as well as your faith. And what a great remedy, I believe, for reducing, if not eliminating, the agony that sometimes comes with decision-making. Instead of saying God has a plan and it's already mapped out, trust that whatever path you choose based on the freedom you've been given, God will be there to meet you and God will never forsake you. Indeed, it might be a good idea after the service to cut out that little verse from Hebrews, which comes from the Psalms and, as I said, Joshua, and uh, put it on your refrigerator. Put it on a mirror. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, back to Angela. I don't know what I would do if I was in her situation. Perhaps you do. And if so, I would love to know what it is after the service. But I do know this. In both Testaments, we have a promise. I will never leave you or forsake you, says the Lord, first in Joshua and today in Hebrews. May each of us learn to trust that incredible promise, especially in the hour of our most difficult decisions. God will be with us no matter what path in life we choose. Amen.
I invite you now to turn to page six in your worship bulletin as we confess together the words of our faith in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. For the prayers of the church, we invite you to sit or kneel, whichever your preference. Trusting in God's extraordinary love, let us come near to the Holy One in prayer. For the church and its leaders, we pray. Uphold all deacons, pastors, and bishops who serve and teach your people. Inspire within us a spirit of invitation that constantly reaches outward. Lord, in your mercy. For the well-being of all creation, we pray. Kindle within us wonder and awe for the beauty of the natural world for oceans and lakes, rivers and streams, forests and deserts. Through such awe and out of gratitude for what we see, help us become better stewards of what God has made. Lord, in your mercy. For the nations and peoples of the world, we pray. Encourage those who pursue justice and equity for all. Defend and accompany all immigrants and refugees and all who are persecuted for their ethnic origin or religious beliefs. Lord, in your mercy. For all who suffer in body, mind, or spirit, we pray. Be present with those who live in isolation or fear, especially those who are incarcerated or detained. Comfort all who are sick or grieving, especially those who keep their grief hidden from others. Lord, in your mercy. For those who face difficult decisions, we pray. Give them courage and reassurance to know that you meet us on whichever path we choose. Lord, in your mercy. For this congregation and its ministries, we pray. Embolden us to live out our mission of sharing God's love for all people in Christ. Lord, in your mercy. For whom or what else do the people of God pray? For my Hear our prayer. 
God of loving kindness, we pray, we pray for the family of Michelle, Michelle, Heidi's brother. We pray for Kyle's brother-in-law, for Lisa's mother. We pray for the family of Annie, Susan's friend, for Peggy's colleague Renata and her friend Joy, for the Vega family, for Candy's sister-in-law, for John's sister-in-law, for the Unseth family, Jessica and her parents, for John's friend, for Joan's cousin Christine, for Karen's brother David, John's son-in-law, Almaz's mother and brother, for Jan in memory of Linda, for Richard, Ben, Barb, Jean, Hildy, Carol, Denny, Ruth, Lee, Mary, and for all the visiting scholars who are gathered with us this morning. Be with each and every one of them and give them the faith and reassurance that God is with them no matter what. Lord, in your mercy. For all the saints who confess God's name, especially Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, and Moses the Black, we give thanks. May we cling to the promise of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Receive the prayers of your children, Lord, in your mercy, and hold us forever in your love through Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord be with you. Please rise as you are able. <laughs> Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is indeed right, our duty and our joy, that we should at all times and in all places give thanks and praise to you, almighty and merciful God, through our Savior Jesus Christ, who on this day overcame death and the grave, and by his glorious resurrection, Open to us the way of everlasting life. And so with all the choirs of angels, with the church on earth and the hosts of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn.
In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. Lord, inspire us to work toward your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. Deliver us from evil. In the power now and forever. All baptized Christians who seek a taste of the new and forgiven life in Jesus Christ are welcome to receive the sacraments. If uh, you wish to come forward, you are welcome as well uh, to receive simply a blessing. Just uh, cross your arms in front of you and you will be blessed accordingly. If you remain in the pew for communion, I'll commune you momentarily. Uh, you'll take the, uh, the bread and the wine out of the little communable that you would have gotten on your way in and receive those at my direction. Otherwise, we commune by intinction, which means you go to the center aisle and I, as well as two assistants, will uh, give you the bread into which you dip the, the wine and, and or, actually not and or, or the grape juice. Christ is among us, receive the bread of life. You may be seated. Okay, it's been a little while. Uh, for those of you who are receiving in your pew, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you.
Please rise as you are able for our post-communion prayer. Life-giving God, through this meal you have bandaged our wounds and fed us with your mercy. Now send us forth to live for others, both friend and stranger, that all may come to know your love. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please now be seated once again for announcements. Once again, good morning. Welcome to Queen Anne Lutheran Church. If you are visiting, we invite you to fill out a Connect card in the pew uh, rack in front of you. Uh, you may also use cards there for prayer. Uh, they are noted. I wanted to uh, welcome first uh, our guests. We have a, a number of unfamiliar faces. Uh, joining us this morning uh, from Seattle University is uh, one of our favorites, Professor Beatrice Lawrence, who has brought with her another group of visiting scholars with whom we will have conversation as we did over a month ago after the service downstairs in the fellowship hall. And there will be top pot donuts, many more than I purchased last time, as well as incredible Lutheran coffee. So uh, if good stimulating conversation about the church, about religion, as well as donuts and coffee are appealing to you, we would love to see you there. Again, that's in the fellowship hall. After the service, we'll have a discussion until about uh, noon and then conclude. Uh, next, I wanted to uh, highlight that we are seeking a children's ministry coordinator. Remember that our mission is to proclaim the love of God in Christ for every person. That includes the youngest and the oldest in our ministry. So please take a look at the description there in the back of the bulletin. And if you know of anybody who might be interested, please help us by spreading the word. Um, finally, I just wanted to say a couple things about uh, uh, office hours. This coming week, they will be reinstated. Um, so I will be uh, in my office on Tuesday and Saturday. The other office hours are posted in your bulletin. We welcome anyone to come by during that time and see us. And if that time doesn't work, you're also welcome to make an appointment. Last thing, I mentioned some unfamiliar faces. Uh, today, I also see faces that will be very familiar to many of you. Uh, joining us is the former pastor of Queen Anne Lutheran, uh, Pastor Wayne and Jackie. We are delighted to have you with us today. Uh, Wayne and Jackie are members of Finney Ridge. Please. <laughs> Wayne and Jackie are members of Finney Ridge, but they'll be worshiping with us periodically, and I couldn't be happier with that. I am one of those lucky pastors who follows uh, a terrific um, predecessor, makes uh, the ministry uh, all the better. So we're delighted that you're here with us today for worship, and we look forward to greeting you during coffee hour as well. Are there any other announcements for the good of the congregation? Then let us close with the blessing. Please rise as you are able. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Our sending hymn, Rise Up, O Saints of God, is number 669 in the Red Hymnal. <laughs> 